0: plushcare.com slash weight loss
1: this is a lot to learn with austin rogers for the guy who knows everything he's still got a lot to learn Without further ado, here's Austin.
0: Welcome, welcome, welcome. Uh, we're here tonight with Christopher Schlotman, the clinical professor, associate chair, and director of undergraduate studies in the Department of Environmental Studies at NYU, New York University. He is currently the author of the forthcoming book, Food, Animals, and the Environment, an Ethical Approach. So let's get started on food animals and the environment. What's the confluence of all of these factors that we need to live off of?
1: Yeah, maybe I can tell you a little bit of a story about how the book came to be, which I think partially answers your question and also kind of helps explain uh, my academic interests and my teaching interests. So about a decade ago, I started designing a class on food and the environment because I figured, you know, I find food interesting, we all eat. I am a professor of environmental studies. I've always loved nature and the environment. And I I thought the overlap between these two was pretty fascinating. And so I started uh, putting together a class, reading all my additional scientific papers, reading as many books as I possibly could. And I found an interesting um, set of stories um, about what the environmental impact of food was. Um, Before you go on to the story, is this this a new discipline?
0: Is this something that has been studied extensively before is there a huge
1: backlog of like academia on this or is this like broad new territory this approach is somewhat new. So there's environmental studies that talks about the impact of agriculture. There's food studies that often talks about the cultural influence of food. Um, this book is in a somewhat new domain in that it puts animals at the center of a conversation on the environmental impacts of food. And so that's a relatively novel area that this is Got it. dealing with. Um, and so um, a little bit more than 10 years ago, uh, Omnivore's Dilemma came out with Michael Pollan. Which uh, is world famous, and I, I knew we were going to reference it some point in time, and now we're referencing it immediately. Immediately, right at the get-go. And so that was the most important book happening at that time, and all the undergrads were reading it. Um, and he tell, he's an amazing storyteller, um, fantastic writer, and he tells a story that I would characterize as kind of the industrial story of the environmental impact of ag agriculture used to be okay back when it was small family farms nestled in the hills of Virginia uh, when we didn't use synthetic chemicals. Right. And he walks
0: through that whole thing, the disease endemic in the stockyards and the sanitation issues and blah, Mm blah, 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 blah.
1: Yeah. Monocultures of corn, all the pesticides that we use there, the horrors of uh, industrial animal agriculture. Um, And a, a common refrain, both kind of literally in terms of the, the words that he's kind of right, he's saying explicitly, this is problematic, but also, you know, figuratively, he's using metaphors of industrialization to represent environmental harm, for instance, um, and so his story is very much an industrial story, and then um, around that time, I forget if it's the exact same year, uh, the UN came out with its first study to look at the environmental impact of animal agriculture called Livestock's Long Shadow in 2006, and that was no the- one else has studied this before. Nobody had tried to put together at a global scale the different pieces of the pie in terms of the environmental impacts of agriculture and treating livestock as its own sector, right? So if you think about um, you know, the environmental impact of an acre of corn, you could say that that's grain, you could say that that's land use, you could say that that's you know, uh, junk food, you could also say that's feed, Right, And each of those different ways of thinking about that same food, you might categorize it differently when you're talking about, at the end of the day, what we're attributing that environmental impact to. And so what was... Innovative about this study, this 2006 UN FAO study, um, was that it really took animal ag as its own sector when thinking about the environmental impacts um, of agriculture. Um, And that was the study that concluded that animal ag is responsible for 18% of all anthropogenic greenhouse gases globally. Uh, Since then, there's been a handful of studies, including UN studies, and kind of a range of estimates um, around that. And the number is You can debate some of the nitty-gritty of the number, but the approximate number is not too far off. Right now, we would say it's 15% more conservatively, for instance. And that would
0: include the full economic pyramid that contributes to raising livestock, meaning the transport and agriculture of the feed, the economic and uh, environmental impact of transporting the Poultry or livestock
1: plus their own animal emissions, correct? That's correct. So it would include all of everything that we can attribute to animals. Every single input
0: needed to produce a steak from start to finish, meaning the farmer in Nebraska making the corn, shipping his corn, yada, yada, yada
1: uh probably not every but all the big things that you can think of right. so whether or not the farmer driving to the farm counts i don't necessarily know right but the feed would count the land clearing would count the animal impacts directly the waste and the land use. oh change. so
0: it goes both positive and negative in that you know by clearing land you have a different impact so uh, net net i okay i get you
1: yeah and so it it gets really complicated which is intellectually super fascinating so the parts of us that are kind of curious about how nature works and how environmental systems work is is totally tickled by this right it's fascinating you change how a landscape is is used you clear the forest you add habitat for certain animals you change how the water goes through the landscape you change how the carbon fluxes work right none of these are very simple linear kind of it's really bad or it's really good it's much more complex it's a huge it's Yes, and that's part of why you can get so much uh, confusion and controversy about coming up with one number to represent the environmental impact of agriculture or animal agriculture. And
0: politically, so, everyone will do their best to try to parse that, be like, oh, no, 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 you're not taken into account, or you are taken into account.
1: It can be politically, it can be socially, um, it can even be epistemically. Like some scientists would much rather be very... Uh, careful and conservative with how they use their numbers because they 're more afraid of overstating than they are understating for instance okay,
0: so a single stake yes, a single stake is there like all right, so you know like everywhere there's the uh, the big Mac index that's the really uh, a great way to find yeah. out you know pa- uh, uh, purchasing power parity of different countries right right is there like a single stake index like a single stake is the same as driving an economy car 31 miles.
1: Yes. um, There have been a number of um, studies that have attempted to uh, quantify that. They do vary somewhat. Um, The general takeaway from those studies is that especially when you're talking about large ruminant animals that need a lot of land or are very large, so cattle, cow, steak would be a prime example of something like that, Um, you find that the... uh, the greenhouse gas emissions of that steak are much more substantial than you would ever would have thought driving thousands of miles. for Thousands instance. of miles. Yeah, the, the impacts are, are tremendous for at the end of the day. For just one steak.
0: Yes. And because what you're talking, you know, cows now are you know, a ton and a half, but back like, you know, a couple generations ago, at least the pollen book talks about that, how, right. you know, how supersized all the animals are and thus how supersized all their diets are. Thus, So, so, I mean, you, you also have a degree in philosophy, correct? Correct. So this is the bridge between the philosophical ethics
1: of what we consume and how it impacts externally right correct and this is why i think this this is such a fun project for me because fun it sounds depressing (laughs) as hell i mean that that is that's it it's it's an occupational hazard of being an environmental (laughs) studies professor is a lot of what we talk about is very i mean is the sky always falling in the environmental sciences world I mean the the sta- the state of these things is is pretty dark quite a lot of the time. There's, of course, screen shoots and moments of hope and reason to persist. but how, <laughs> how long do we have? <laughs> <Yeah>. For what? <laughs> it's so, it's so for, to say. for all of it <laughs> yeah. We're we're setting ourselves up for a pretty <laughs> pretty rough uh, century at least at this point. So, and this is not just you know this is not just localized
0: like I know the United States consumes the most of X and Y and Z and blah blah blah. But this is this is worldwide. This is everything.
1: When we're talking about environmental impacts, we're talking about food impacts. Food impacts. So, or yeah, is this so, so, a, or this is a, an us problem? This is, um, it's a global rich problem is probably the most accurate way to put it. Um, And so, of course, the U.S. is a, a pretty large repository of the global rich, um, but the so-called global middle class is increasingly when people get more money in certain countries they consume a lot more meat for instance right i know um, you're seeing the change in diet in like china and india right now it's growing exponentially whereas in in the industrialized countries that have had access to meat basically since after the end of world war 2 um, we've hit kind of i like to call it peak meat mm-hmm, right mm-hmm. It's like people can't consume much more than they already have and some for some reason argentina on these trend lines started much higher and is actually plummeting but but I think that's just because they were eating so much I originally. Mean, uh, th-
0: th- yeah, like their original, <laughs> I mean, that is Argentina. It, it is the right. land of steak.
1: And yes. maybe they're like, ah,
0: are you a little staked out now? Yeah, yeah
1: I am, I am. <laughs> exactly. They couldn't sustain that. So that one's down. Everywhere else, it's going up um, um, or leveling.
0: Which is sort of in the brighter, broader environmental scope, what's happening in other environmental fa- uh, sectors because- correct. As people get more money, they consume more full stop. And it doesn't matter what they consume. It all has an impact. So we've got a whole nation of if we've got a whole nation whose middle class is four times the size of the United States, like in India or China, it's not looking good.
1: Correct. Yeah, so so Chinese car purchases with the new global middle class is a great example of non-food environmental uh, um, consumer items that are growing exponentially in that context. To give you a sense of the scale of these impacts, though, there's a really interesting study about a year and a half ago um, when... um, Back when we thought Paris was going to be a global agreement that included the United States, the the Congress of parties, the Paris agreements, we set out targets to say we want to keep climate change at at certain thresholds. Two degrees Celsius was the agreement with an aspiration of one and a half degrees Celsius um, above uh, above a certain baseline. Um, And what that means is you have a budget. So there's what we emit right now, there's how much we can emit in order to hit that threshold, and the difference is the budget, right? You can emit X percent more and we'll still be within the budget. That entire budget... Um, will be used up just by the increase in meat consumption by the global middle class. So, like that's the that's the scope of the environmental impact of this change in diet.
0: Right. Um, so that doesn't that that's just that's just the meat. Correct. So, like all the rest, the coal, the cars, the ships, the the energy plants,
1: that's correct. still going. That's additional on top of that.
0: So it could really, the, the, the meat quota on the budget could like seriously affect the world climate if, I mean, so now we get into the ethics yes. and the philosophy, you know, yep. you're a vegetarian, right? Correct. Um, so uh, it, 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 it's always, it's the eternal question. Does my personal choice actually make a difference if no one else is going along with it?
1: Right. So that's that's one of the the important questions to try to wrestle with. And then there's the but that's that's very much a kind of a practical kind of almost political social question. So it has ethical importance as well. There's also the ethical way to ask that same question. Right. So should I do it even if I don't know whether or not it's going to have a difference? Right? It's like, would you mug someone if you could get away with it? Well, probably not if you had certain well. values. <laughs> so maybe we have a slight <laughs> difference when it comes to it. But you think about, you know, kind of in... in um, I, I did a, a wilderness trip during college, and, w- and one of the things that stuck with me from one of the instructors, is he said, ethics are what you do when nobody's watching. Right. Yeah. And so it's this idea that it's, it's because, you do it because it's a value, not necessarily because it's you well, know, yeah. I mean, social I guess- approbation or social...
0: The outdoors thing is actually totally apropos because it was like I I reunited with one of my brother's friends who I, you know, I knew as a kid. But he's like, do you remember that time where you were driving me and your brother around and you stopped the car and you turned around because I threw a bag of McDonald's out of the car? Right. And I go, yeah, I did. You don't throw crap out of my car Correct. Until you get to Bedford, (laughs) we were still in Pound Ridge. If you're gonna litter, you litter in Bedford. (laughs) But 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 no, true. I did I did stop the car. I'm like, pick that up. Come on, man. We live on we live we literally live on the same road. And I'm like, Frank, pick
1: that up. That was Frank. I see. Yeah. (laughs) Frank Boop. Yeah, I mean, that's the idea. It's like, if you can get away with it, you know, would you still do it? Well, no, because you think there's something wrong about littering, right? right. It's despoiling spoiling nature. It's a bad virtue, right? There's a reason why. So we, we should go back to your prior point about whether or not it has a difference. I just wanted to highlight this question right, of kind right, of right, like right. Why, we, why we might do something like this. Um, and so we get into a really tough area because um, we can think about this in terms of what the impacts of the individual are, like kind of national environmental impacts divided by per capita and then kind of see what the proportional impacts are um we can see about how we could ask a question about how easy it is to make changes right it's going to be hard to like build a cabin in the woods that's you know net zero but it's pretty easy to buy something different in the supermarket right so we could frame the question that way um and then we could think about kind of why we're trying to do this as well we we want to mitigate climate change right we want this to add up to something that's consequential so in terms of individual behaviors that we control um, the behaviors that have the most significant environmental impact um, are ones um, correlated with affluence basically consumer power right whether or not you have a second house or a second car or buy a lot of stuff or something like that whether or not you choose to have children right, kind of increase in population and the kind of exponential environmental impacts that come with something like that, and then what you eat, the, the environmental impact of ag. Um, and so that's one way to kind of think about the empirical side of things. It's kind of like, at the end of the day, how many additional carbon emissions are, am I kind of responsible for in some sense or another? But of course, what we don't want, and this is a great failing of the of many parts of the American environmental movement, is just to kind of buy the certified green something-something in the supermarket, because... Who loves that more than anyone is the companies that want to sell you stuff because then the hippie that would otherwise call their senator is now happy because they got the green certified label something and they're not, their energy is kind of, they're distracted by researching all this stuff. There's all this information about everything. So um, there's a lot of questions that arise when we talk about kind of our individual action and the extent to which it has impacts environmental impacts, social impacts anything else along those lines and again it goes back to this question of if we if we're doing things in accordance with our values which is a separate question from whether or not it has necessarily these huge impacts so you might choose not to um you know purchase chocolate that was uh, partially made using child slavery or gold or something along those lines you're not going to single-handedly stop the horrible industry right that's creating this stuff but you on principle don't want to engage with it and then maybe if enough people get together if it becomes a movement right if you kind of get this at scale it might have these impacts but you might decide that you still want to do it even if you can't prove that you're necessarily kind of fundamentally changing these things um so and you were
0: talking about the point about you know the the all-organic green movement, I mean, is this, eliminates the impetus to go fight for change because you're placated with a product that fulfills your needs in an ethical way, but is it really because the most ethical thing would be that product category not existing full stop, or the whole thing fixed completely through political or activist action,
1: so is this late capitalism gone awry. Right. So th- that's a great way to set up the thorny problem that we have to deal with. It we m- still need stuff, and we need to eat, and we need to buy things, you know? Right, and we still need to to pretend that there's a chance that we can make things better, right? So we don't want to give up all hope. And so it is. it's a really tough knot of a bunch of different issues that are coming together because, of course, somebody could go to the supermarket, buy the thing with the label, and that could be the opening to thinking about these issues, and then they could call their friends, they could call their senator, right? And so you don't want to exclude that possibility. But U.S. folk do have a long history of basically thinking of their civic engagement when they engage in it at all, Um, as a form of consumer engagement, right? I'm going to buy differently.
0: Yes, you, you, right. you vote with your wallet. You know, right. you always vote with your wallet.
1: Exactly. But that means, of course, Americans don't really vote. Um, and so th- that's a serious problem because they're actually not, they're voting only with their wallet, right? When you have a minority of Americans voting in, in elections, for instance. And it does do this thing where it diffuses some of the energy that could be channeled towards other sources that would happen at scale. Right, and so I like to say, really as a thought experiment in my class more than like advice for anyone, maybe you shouldn't follow you know, like better environmental practices as an individual, whatever they might be, consumer practice or other practices or riding your bike or something like that, but spend all your time calling up your Congress critter and yelling at them about environmental issues and telling them that you're gonna support them more if they support environmental issues because if that piece of legislation gets passed, the impacts are at such a scale, that would make your individual actions. So pale there's in the
0: individual choices again. Right. You know, not what can I do uh, by abstaining from meat or having it once a week or you know not buying high fructose corn syrup. It's what right. can I do by because everything we're limit we're all the whenever anyone thinks about their uh, their individual choices, it's always in limiting themselves right it's always in i'm going to reduce right. something i'm going to and you flipped it and you right. added no 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 it's actually a different choice you can have it could be being proactive in the community and politically mm-hmm. and and spreading the word through that so so that is actually in a perverse way a a positive what can I do because everything else is... Everything else, when you hear the what can I do, it's like, oh, well, that really cool car you want, you got to get the dorky Toyota Prius. Uh, That really, oh, you, you know... You you want, oh, it's so nice taking the taxi to work. You got to go on the bike even if it's raining. Right. And all of these are privation. And you're like, well, you don't have to also, pro, uh, you don't also have to abstain. And you know,
1: right.
0: you can flip it and turn it into a different kind of positive where, like, oh, I'm going out and I'm talking and I'm um, meeting people and I'm going to senators and I'm making phone calls. Right.
1: I think that's right. There's a couple of different dimensions there and I think that's totally right and I I do think that the parts of many different social movements have been framed on the don't do this, the kind of negative message, and this horrible thing is happening, we should do anything about it. It's it's built into a social movement. You're trying to stop a bad thing. So you talk about the bad thing, right, and you say how you should limit yourself in response. Especially in the U.S. context, the idea of restricting one's individual behavior doesn't go over particularly well. It doesn't go
0: over at all because, you know, from my cold, dead hand. And
1: I do think that... uh, that it's important to tell positive stories, right? Clean air is a wonderful thing, enjoying nature. So amazing, so world-expanding. Right, we
0: just went on a 41-mile bike ride this afternoon
1: right.
0: through city parks, through national parks, through right. national wildlife preserves. Right. Uh, we saw, you know, plovers and seagulls and rare trees all yep. in Brooklyn and Queens. Right. And I don't think your lungs could have handled going on a 40-mile bike ride in 1972.
1: That is absolutely true. Yeah, not at all. I, um, we,
0: could, we definitely wouldn't have been able to see the skyline from, what, 15 miles out at Floyd Bennett Field? And just right. seeing the New York City skyline
1: perfectly clear. Yeah, one of the greatest uh, environmental policy success stories, the Clean Air Act, that that made that possible, is to get the pollution out of the air. And it's such a win-win-win. The cost to industry was very modest. The benefit to public health was well into the many, many billions of dollars. Everyone benefited from this. We just needed to actually work on this as um, as a functioning society with a functioning government doing its job. There's no way things like that could have happened through individual consumer action, right? If you right. think about it this this way. And yet we have these large-scale collective action problems that have global implications that extend well into the future and we're responding to them as if buying something with a stamp on it is somehow going to make a difference, right? And again, it's not to say that that's intrinsically bad, but it's to say it's a very limited way to think about such a complex and large-scale problem.
0: This subject is nearly impossible for a human mind to get around because it's operating on such enormous magnitudes of numbers, like it's like, you know, imagining all the stars in the galaxy, like right. we are very task-based people. Uh, We're very, what's in front of us. So you're not thinking everything that came before this individual thing that I've bought or consumed, you don't know about the train or or the scale or the the supply line that got it there. So we're really myopic. So how do you eliminate that myopic outlook by being like, you know, what is it in the In The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, remember how they executed criminals. They put them in a room that made them comprehend the magnitude of the universe, (laughs) and their brain just shut off because it's impossible to comprehend the magnitude of the universe. Um, So how do we get people in that box where they just go, bing?
1: Right. Right. It might not be possible in the current world. It's really, really complex, right? There's 7 billion people and um, who live lives that we can't imagine, right? There's just so many different ways to live in this world. Um, it's really hard to understand that it's even tougher with certain environmental issues, global environmental change and climate change in particular. There's a, a great quote by an environmental philosopher, Stephen Gardner, where he says, if and I'm going to butcher this quote and get it wrong, but the takeaway is is approximately correct. If we were to design a problem that human brains are uniquely bad at understanding, we have it, it, it. Would, it would be climate change, right? It's long-term, it's invisible, it affects things in the distant future, right? It works probabilistically, right? And so there's all these dimensions of it that are actually really, really tough for human brains to comprehend.
0: Right, and even tougher still when, you know... Miami was supposed to be underwater 10 years ago, but it's not. Well, things change, but still, it's still dire. Yeah. Unless, you know, because immediately the immediate, uh, the immediate contrarians are like, well, remember when you said this would happen?
1: Right. Right. That's of course a different bias. The presumption is that the predictions are wrong. And then if, if anything that, um, in environmental scientists, uh, or a Democrat says, has any kind of slightest inconsistency to it, or God forbid, is slightly inaccurate. Because the presumption is that they're going to be wrong, somebody gets to jump on their throat and dismiss them out of hand. Another area of human psychology we're not particularly good at is understanding probabilities and predictions, right? And in this case, you know, predicting the weather is tough as it is. Predicting the climate is not as tough because we're talking about these long-term trends. Yes. Understanding exactly what that's going to do if this year is going to be a bad hurricane season. We can kind of do it, but we're not going to do it perfectly. But we can say on average over time, these trend lines are increasing. Right,
0: right. We've got the ice cores and the you know the core samples and you know medieval bog records and you know muds, muds from like you know mud flats in the Atacama or whatever that you can use to be like it was. You know there was the mini ice age in the what was it like the seventeen hundreds or something like that, and uh, there was another one in like the twelve hundreds and stuff like that. Uh, So and you could tell when these things are going to happen or when they're trending towards what they're happening, but you can't say, oh, by the way, lightning's going to strike your house at 3.57 p.m. on Tuesday the 14th.
1: Exactly. We can't do that. And um, and yet that's kind of what But want. lightning
0: might strike your house more often now.
1: Right. Well, we can say with certain phenomena that they're happening more often, for instance, right? And that kind of uh, hurricanes that used to be infrequent are now more frequent Um and their strength might be increasing, right? There's things like that we can say with a high degree of confidence. Again, it's hard to um, translate that into this year, this hurricane is going to look like X, Y, and Z um, in these particular moments. Um, so there's psychological barriers for sure. And I think that's um, something that's important to understand. And I think this, the, this prior point you were saying about stories of deprivation versus stories of aspiration maybe or positive stories is also a psychological challenge, right? Because we, at the end of the day, we're overwhelmed by messages about how everything is in trouble. And of course, it, it might very well, and I believe it is true that many parts of the world are in deep trouble, but that doesn't mean that that's the only way to communicate about responding to environmental issues, right? So telling these positive stories about natural beauty and the importance of preserving it. Uh, preserving natural services right like um landscapes and forests and water clean air and clean water for uh people's children and grandchildren that's if we've studied this and that's something that people can understand even though it's projecting into the distant future. So by, you
0: personified the distant future and then all of a sudden they're like, oh, wait, now I get it. Rather than if you just said, in 150 years, Miami's underwater. But if you say, in 150 years, little Timmy's underwater.
1: It's easier for people to understand things that they can connect to themselves. At the end of the day, that's kind of how, how... many human beings work psychologically. So making that connection matters. And this is where actually we do get back. To so
0: we just have to do put smiley faces on everything and then you'd be like, that's a person. Yeah. I, I'm mean old hurricane.
1: <laughs> we should try it. Who knows? <laughs> yeah, right. Maybe it'll work. <laughs>
0: there was an episode of Futurama uh, on global warming they had to go get a big ice cube to drop in the ocean to cool the oh, cool right. the planet down that. but <laughs> it was like it did the little like 50s bung, 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 bung. <laughs> here's little solar ray and it's a guy with a yes. business hat and a briefcase and it's like <laughs> unfortunately him and all his buddies are dying <laughs> and they're just so that's all we have to do we have to show that futurama clip and be like little mr Sunray is dying and his corpses are rotting the planet <laughs>
1: Yeah, I mean, making it personal really matters. I think that's that's absolutely true. I think, um, you know, fear fear is an emotional response that, that can be depleted really quickly. And so it works in the immediate moment because we're kind of wired to care about things that might hurt us. You can't do that every day without depleting your adrenal glands and just numbing and blocking it out, right? And so I think there's limits to, to many of the kind of negative emotional responses that people have. I think there are lots of ways to present the aspirational story. The beauty of the natural world is definitely one to bring it back to kind of the individual level and agriculture, right? Instead of thinking about deprivation, don't eat this thing that's bad, right? You could think about plenitude, you could think about varieties, you could think about how interesting the the millions of different cuisines in the world are that are plant-based, right? There's definitely ways to talk about this in a way that's not about deprivation, but would still, Tell a story that aligns better with what the empirical evidence says about what's environmentally beneficial.
0: Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in
2: the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching
1: for a new job but might be open to the perfect role.
2: Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.
0: The, the individual decisions that you make that are in the positive rather than in the, in the negative, like uh i i'm going to decide to have uh, spinach cuz it's got a lower impact i don't know if that's true or not but i'm going to have spinach cuz it's got a lower impact than yeah. broccoli which doesn't yeah. um and but then that could also those individual choices could also cause the economic choices that are made because the farmer doesn't want to grow spinach cuz it doesn't get all the money that monoculture corn does right right
1: yeah, this is getting really complicated really fast. So maybe we can talk a little bit about kind of some of the proportions and scale to give a sense of, of this.
0: Proportions and scale
1: of? Of, of ag and the environmental oh, okay, yeah, ag. yeah. So yeah. one of the many numbers that kind of blows my mind. Ag means agriculture. Ag means agriculture, <laughs> right. Um, so one of the numbers that always blows my mind is, um, is um, it has to do with the kind of global scale and then the national scale, the U.S. scale of how much land we use and how many resources we apply to each of these. If you have a halfway's balanced diet, right, you have a plate in front of you and you have a starch and a protein and a vegetable and, and something else that the USDA recommends or something along those lines, and you would think that the way we use land in this country for agriculture would be roughly proportional to something like that. Not even close. Not even close. So when we're talking about agricultural land in the United States, uh, we use uh, 4% of it to grow all of our fruits and vegetables. Yep. 4% of agricultural land is fruits and vegetables. The things we're supposed to eat right, right, right. make up only 4%. And at the end of the day, almost all of that is the Central Valley in California. <laughs> it's yep. a very, very concentrated area, which raises other questions because that's the paleoclimate for the area says it's the desert, right? And so it's not gonna be easy to grow food there in the future, right? The rest is the monocultures and the grazing land. And those monocultures, the corn, the soy, are, at the end of the day, almost always the majority of them are used as animal feed. And so even those end up being on kind of the animal food side of the ledger. So, and,
0: the I mean, obviously we know this, but saying it out loud makes it even more real. The The animal protein double dips from the land.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. And it's we're using the term loosely because it whatever the equivalent of 15 times or 20 times dipping would be. Right, because
0: right. it takes, I mean, I remember, again, this Omnivore's the Vilemma book comes up frequently because it's yep. immensely popular, immensely influential, yeah. but it's like, you know, uh, 15 tons of corn yeah. to f- to fill the body of one cow to maturity or something like that.
1: Right. Or, I, are- I mean
0: I don't know what the number is yeah. but you can you can look it up but it it's it's staggering like 100 acres grows 1 pound of beef right. per month or something like that. Yeah. So you need it for a 2000 pound cow right. you need 1452 acres right. over 1 month times Fourteen years, or what? I don't. Whatever. How long? It, how long until they kill cows? Three years, something like that. Less than less than two years. Yeah. Year and a half. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So all of that is right, and of course, the, the numbers are things that you can find. But that's the kind of systems way to understand when we're talking about the environmental impact of. Of a steak, and let's pick a steak because at the end of the day, it's probably the most environmentally impactful food that exists.
0: And I was um, using steak sort of as a blithe example, but yeah. I, I, I guess innately, I assumed that you know the caloric intake of a cow must be spectacularly large right. per, compared to a chicken or a goat. You know,
1: correct? Yeah, and there's a couple of other things uh, that make um, eating cows particularly impactful from an environmental perspective, but just on the feed conversion question. So when we're talking about the environmental impact of a steak, we're talking about the grazing land that was cleared by the cow. When the cow is on that field, they're moving around, their hooves are disrupting the soil that actually releases some carbon. When their waste is concentrated, it emits a greenhouse gas nitrous oxide that's particularly uh, heat trapping. Um, At the end of the day, you're growing the thousands of acres of corn that are in turn being fed to the animal. Of those thousands of acres of corn and all the calories that are in there, a very small percentage of those calories end up in your steak because the cow is living its life and respiring and moving around and burning calories. You're right, just getting the end calories. Exactly. And it's in the case of something like beef, it's it's almost always single digits. It's a very small percentage of the actual calories that are produced in the field that are very often human-grade. It's not grasses or something like that. This is food that we could eat directly and get 100% of the calories, but we're eating them in the form of something that was fed to an animal, in this case a cow, and we're getting say 5% of those calories that we grew. So those are some of the environmental impacts, and one of the ones that's very interesting that puts cows up there on this um, on the environmental impacts uh, scale really high is that they, because they're ruminants, because they're eating cellulosic matter in this complicated, fascinating Uh, digestive system that they have um, and because of the way that these foods break down in their stomach, they burp a lot of methane, right? Methane is very, very, very heat trapping gas. Um, And so there's almost this joke, it's like you're telling me that cattle have this big environmental impact because they burp a lot. That doesn't make any sense. But if you think about the billion plus cattle on this earth and the fact that they weigh a lot, we have more cattle by weight on the globe than we do human beings. And so if each of those are burping this gas that traps many, many times more heat than carbon, multiplied by a billion, right? You think about just the mass part of it, the weight of it, and Randall Monroe XKCD has a wonderful visualization of this, um, then it actually does add up at the end of the day because the scale of- And
0: they're not not burping like 1.4 ounces, they're Burping like eight quarts or whatever the capacity of you know yeah. the stomach gases of a cow is, which
1: has got to be. You've never seen a, a methane backpack. You don't know these things? This seems like your kind of thing.
0: No, what's a methane backpack? So
1: you can basically attach like a large container to the top of a cow as a form of a backpack, and you put a mask uh-huh. over their mouth, uh-huh. and when they're burping the methane, it fills the backpack. And so you can actually see what the volume of the amount of methane that a cow burps. No, I've never is. even heard of that. And, and, then, and then you try to keep it, because you can you can burn it. It's natural gas. Right, so right, right. You can use right. it for fuel. And so the idea is to try to capture it. The problem is you would need a billion methane backpacks and, and then somebody has to go and empty them every day
0: but also right. someone has to manufacture them so what's the environmental impact of manufacturing sure. these it's, plastic it's, it's, things it's yeah.
1: a lot less than the methane but yes we have to think about the systems yeah when we think about these things
0: wow that's that's insane yeah so like nothing nothing is nothing is black and white cut and dry other than you know the decisions that you can make
1: Right, and even those are complex, right? So you get really interesting examples where kind of one of the important um, stories that someone like Paulin tells that has a lot of resonance in modern U.S. culture is this this idea of local food. Know your farmer, get food from nearby, transportation has all these environmental harms, right? And so on the surface, it's psychologically very appealing, right? Know your farmer is great, support your local economy, fantastic your food tastes better, even better, right? It's a win-win. But there's a couple of tricks with something like that. Um, one is that transportation is is rarely a large percentage of the environmental impacts, particularly the climate impact of any food product. It's almost always, it's always production. Did you clear the field? How much fertilizer did you spread on it? Is it an animal that's burping methane that has waste lagoons and stuff like that? And so it's the production side that has the vast majority of climate impacts and almost always the other environmental impacts that, that apply as well. Transportation is, is almost always single digits, 7 8% along those lines. So right there, you're not helping with the climate impact by making it local. You might be increasing the climate impact by growing food that doesn't grow well in that area. And so it needs extra inputs. It needs extra fertilizer. It needs to be in a greenhouse in the winter that's heated by natural gas right it it needs water artificially irrigating it there so those would be the environmental sides um and then you get into a really tough i, I think interesting uh, but important issue which is by choosing to give your money to a, another us citizen a member of a very affluent country who's who's a farmer um instead of someone who is in a much poorer country that might want to export that food, you're actually making a choice about which kind of farmer you're supporting. And in that case, you could argue at least it all comes down to the details and the specific cases we're talking about, right? But instead of supporting a healthy American company that's doing okay, it might actually make sense to have the imported food from a much poorer country where that farmer is going to benefit much more from your American dollar. And so it's the opposite of local food, but it might, from a justice perspective, be a preferable one.
0: You're not localizing your dollar. Exactly.
1: So we already globalize all of our environmental and political impacts. Why should we keep our money at home? Right,
0: right, right. Because we, we as a post-industrial society, we outsource all of our... We outsource all of our environmental negatives. Right. You know, we the rare earth metals are mined there. And the factories right. with the unfair labor conditions are over there. And so we literally outsource all of our... What we used to make and what we used to do. So if we're outsourcing the negatives, why don't we outsource some of the money too so they don't have to be...
1: But then... Well, Distribute some of the positives.
0: Yeah, guess, yeah. Distribute the positives yeah. since we're already outsourcing all of the negatives. All right. of the negatives yeah. because we don't have sweatshops anymore in the United States. We don't – well, okay, sorry. <laughs> uh, next week we'll be talking to the sweatshop expert. It's not endemic like it wasn't. It would, it's not. We're not a nation of the triangle shirtwaist factory anymore.
1: Correct, and, so, and, and, but, and where but much of our clothing comes from is places where it's clear cut. It's, it's very
0: yes. much triangle shirtwaist in you know Southeast Asia Correct. and yes. parts of China and Bangladesh. Yes. Um. So so ethically, if we're already going full bore by exporting our in bad environmental policies, right. The positive way to reinforce this would be to export some of the money alongside of it. So, hey, we know you're sucking it up because we consume stuff, but also here's some extra so you could pull yourselves up, too.
1: Correct. But then
0: they're middle class and then they start consuming more, too. Then what do we do?
1: Yeah. I don't think a a Bangladeshi rice farmer is ever going to be middle class. Okay. 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 okay, Fair enough. Fair enough. Fair enough. Fair enough. Rising global middle class is our, um, you know, kind of professional class, um, kind of individuals. Um, whereas, um, farmers in non-industrialized countries are are not going to be there anytime soon. Soon. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it is an interest. And you know, again, it's, I never wanna generalize without a bunch of caveats, right? So we're talking about local food, but I think this does spell out some of the complexities of that decision. It's not an unequivocal black and white good thing to buy locally, because there are environmental considerations, there's justice considerations, um, and there's kind of how we wanna distribute good things around the world considerations as well. Um, So it's just like one little microcosm of, of where this gets a little bit more complex than anything. This is something I'm sensitive to in my teaching and my writing. I don't want the kind of implicit takeaway message to be to give up all hope because it's too complicated and it's not worth trying and everything is infinitely gray and it's all equal or something like that. That's not what I'm trying to talk about. I am trying to show the complexity of a lot of these issues. It isn't black and white a lot of the time. That said, there are some generalizations that I think are worth kind of... um, holding on to and taking away from studying this area, at least, of the environmental impacts of agriculture. Um, and that is where this comes back to this story about, um, about the role of animals and telling that story instead of the industrial story. Because so much changed with industrialization, right? The world population being the very obvious case, right? The world population grew exponentially when we were able to basically... Uh, preempt certain diseases, treat other diseases, and synthesize nitrogen in a form that was bioavailable to plants. Haber Bosch. Fritz Haber! Fritz, Fritz Haber, please, Haber, baby! Let's do an episode on oh, Haber Bosch. Fritz,
0: Fritz Haber. Haber is... Uh Oh, that wacky German. Uh, I mean, oh (laughs) my God. His personal
1: story is fascinating.
0: Everything about him is fascinating. Like that man, for those of you who don't know, Fritz Haber found a way to synthesize nitrogen. Originally for explosives, correct? Because before World War I, to get nitrogen for explosives, you had to harness it through guano through dung and there were only several islands in like right. the pacific ocean chile and uruguay or All, chile chile, the coast chile the and beach. argentina yep. waged a war over some of those islands the and
1: passed the guano island act
0: you what was that to,
1: to claim those islands for itself
0: oh really yeah. uh, man uh, not manifest destiny uh monroe doctrine western hemisphere is yeah. ours yes um uh, That's
1: how desperate we were for nitrogen to grow stuff,
0: right? To grow stuff yeah. and to make explosives. And then World yeah. War One comes along, and the uh, the Germans are embargoed and, and unable to harness this. So the Scientist Fritz Haber finds a way to synthesize nitrogen for explosives, but the world magnification of it is now you could synthesize nitrogen for fertilizer because in at least Europe, at least, you'd use fish waste or ground-up fish or animal waste. And now all of a sudden, you could literally just make an injection of nitrogen and just spread it right there.
1: Yes. And that ability... This is such a.
0: Well, it, 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 it automatically negates a Malthusian crisis because Malthus was like population and food cannot, but then by the invention of artificial nitrogen, it's like, oh, Malthus doesn't make sense anymore because we can outstrip food production.
1: Right. Right. But without Haber, it's possible Malthus would have been totally right. 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 It's oh one of these yeah. Yeah. Counter-factuals oh yeah. We don't know. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Oh
0: yeah. No. We might have right. hit. We might have hit a ceiling. Like we might have stopped yes. at like you know four point five billion or whatever. Right. Um. But n- you think it's you much lower? You can. You can. You don't have to whisper. You oh, can sorry. actually say. Right. You can't see me. Uh, yeah. yeah.
1: <laughs> oh no. I think the the population at that time was much lower than that.
0: Yeah. Well. I mean. Well, yeah. I mean. All we have to do is what was the population in nineteen hundred? You know. So, um, well, let's Google it.
1: Um. So wh- while you're googling that question. One of the points I want to make is that this ability to synthesize nitrogen is one of the most world changing things that's ever happened, and I think often underappreciated and underexplored.
0: And here's the answer uh, What are we at right now? 8.1 billion. 1750, 700 million. Yeah. 1804, 1 billion. Yeah. 1850, billion. Right. 1900, 1.6 billion. That sounds right. 2014, 8.1 billion. Exactly. And this is completely because of synthesized nitrogen and increased agricultural yields.
1: Very largely. But yes. Okay. So it it has to be the biggest driver behind it. Right. So we knocked
0: 10% off of it, but a full 90% of that population growth, growth is due essentially to one man, Fritz Haber.
1: Yes, and what he was able to well, what he was able to discover, then Carl Bosch was able to to scale it up at a, in a commercial, and that's why it's called the Haber Bosch process. Okay, the, the combination. Of those yeah, two I only guys. know
0: I only know the Haber side of the story. I don't know yeah, the Bosch side of the story.
1: Haber's the one that uh, that allowed us to squeeze it out of air because the air around us is made of nitrogen, just not in a form right. that we can access. And Bosch was the one who allowed us to do it at scale, so we could produce industrialize all this it exactly. Got it, um, and so world-changing nitrogen pollution starts. All kinds of, you know, populations um, explode exponentially, which causes all kinds of geopolitical issues, and uh, we start depleting soil, because now we can force the plants to grow well with all this extra nitrogen, but then they're also picking up potassium, phosphorus, other micronutrients in the soil, but we're not replenishing those. So a whole cascade of different environmental and social phenomena um, come from this phenomena. But what also happens is these billions of additional humans are able to live and be fed. Right? And this is an interesting challenge to the Michael Pollan industrial story that before industrialization, everything was you know, better off environmentally because if we were to revert back to this pre-industrial system- But
0: you wouldn't be alive.
1: We wouldn't be alive and- Statistically- and of the you- people who live right now, the vast majority of them would not have access to food. Yeah. Right? The only way to grow food to feed all the current world citizens without synthetic nitrogen is to clear every last forest. And even then, it's not even clear. We would just need to use all the land available plus some. And so this is where the industrial story is also more complex and to some extent incomplete as well. So, this again, this is the the thing to wrestle with, right? And kind of a lot of the environmental movement and a lot of the food movement has an aversion to this idea of industrialization. For obvious reasons. Well, think about the horrible large-scale environmental impacts and social impacts and animal impacts, right? And you want to reject it. So again, it's kind of this mismatch between the kind of psychology framing storytelling and the reality of things. And maybe an interesting analog to get us off of food for a second before coming back is the, the long history in, in much of the environmental movement of disliking urban areas. Right, Because you don't have a lot of nature that's obviously accessible. You have a lot of concrete.
0: But urban areas have a lower carbon footprint. By miles. Because... Uh, just just literally everything. You're building everything together. You're housing everyone together. You're concentrating all right. the energies. Right. You don't have to transport the energies, be it
1: electricity or right. anything much right. further. I mean... Right, you're living in smaller attached spaces, yeah. right? Yeah. And remember, land use change is a huge environmental impact, right? A climate impact, a, a biodiversity and a habitat impact, a water cycle impact. And so on Manhattan... Right. You're, you're housing what is a million and a half individuals yeah, yeah. using a really it's it's 13 miles by two and a half miles at the white at 14th Street. Right. It's 26 or less square miles and you're housing oh, a million and a half people. You did not have to clear a lot of land to make that habitat possible. And Manhattan residents, um, if if. I forget if it's if Manhattan or New York was a or New York City was a state, it would rank fifty first in terms of carbon emissions. It would be by far the lowest
0: because right? it takes up the smallest amount of land exactly, and you consume the least resources. You don't use right. personal transportation resources. Right. You don't heat a cold home from net zero to yeah. eighty five degrees during the winter right. just from just from a baseline of zero. Right, yes. you, the whole building is. Either heated or ready to turn the heat on at a moment's notice because it's already there. You right. know.
1: Yeah, the heating and the cooling. The buildings in New York City are the big impacts. It's the heating and cooling at the right, end of the day. Right.
0: And I think, but even that is a less impact than say if each one of these people lived in an individual home.
1: Many, many, many times less right. impactful to live in in dense urban areas, um, and so we get we get some of these kind of. Um, Paradoxes of of modern living, where we kind of miss the country um, and want to be close to it, and that's something we're both very sympathetic to as individuals, and we both live in the city, right? But of course, we have too many people in this world to allow too many people to indulge in that, right? And so, there's this is great kind of mini essay by a restoration ecologist named William Jordan from. Um, a number of decades ago, called Ten Thousand Leopolds. If everyone wants to have a shack in the woods, <laughs> right? Then you're destroying the woods because you're building too right. many of these shacks right, 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 right. So,
0: woods. so <laughs> he, someone, someone, the generic overarching someone has to take one for the team. You know,
1: right? And we also have to 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 quit hating on cities because cities have amazing environments and amazing nature well we're
0: we're new yorkers we're from the suburbs originally we both grew up in a um not a rural town actually an incredibly affluent town called pound ridge new york but as a result of its affluence it did not develop its land so frequently i mean from chris's house Mm -hmm. you could not see his neighbor's house Right. from my house you cannot see my neighbors houses to the left or right of me but you could see the one across the street and uh as a result of that we grew up in this you know artificially bucolic uh atmosphere because right. 100 years ago before modern industrial food Pound Ridge was the dairy and egg basket of New York City. Don't forget Pickle
1: Hill and the Res.
0: Exactly. So all of these all of what we what we thought was pristine virginal forest was actually hard agrarian lifestyle one hun- just 100 years ago. Right. So there is an even more intangible too because we l- we lucked out to live on a 5,000 acre nature preserve and go right. backpacking and hiking in what pre-industrial would have had. We would have been, first of all, there would have been three of us. And yeah. second of all, we would have been shipping milk to New York City so it didn't spoil in time. Right. I mean, and thus the concentration of the city improved everywhere. Long Island, uh, Westchester, New Jersey, you know?
1: Yes. Yes. Yeah, and this is one of, one of the, problems with the kind of pre-industrial romantic story is if you really want to scale that up you're going to get rid of every last nature preserve there is yeah you're going to be driving everywhere all the time your climate impacts go up substantially your other environmental impacts go up substantially no and
0: and pound ridge is it's it's rocky glaciated uh, soil and so thus it was only suitable for like uh like grazers and 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 uh you know sheep and goats and and cows for dairy and chickens mm-hmm. you know that was all you could get out of it because you couldn't grow anything in, in any of that land because it's just sh- straight up stones right. and as a result it became you know once the turn of the century hit and the, once the 50s hit, it became one of the wealthiest towns in the United States just because it could revert back to forest.
1: Yeah, and it was, it was close to an economic center of the city. Yeah, um,
0: and yeah. it wasn't Greenwich or New Canaan, which are garbage towns. That's <laughs> fair. <it's there. laughs>
1: New Canaan especially. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so as... Uh, you I'm know, not I'm not editing
0: that one. That one stays no in. One stays. I've, that's fine. I've been I've been making notes on what's going to get excised from this. But uh, <laughs> not New that can, one. New Canaan has a garbage <laughs> town. I stand by this. And Greenwich, wow, there's some classy people who live in Greenwich. They're all named Chet with a hedge fund.
1: <laughs> and they don't have the Pound Ridge reservation. And they don't so like, have the Pound Ridge reservation. That's the big disadvantage of those places. Yeah. Yeah. So it's not. It's not to. I, again, I think a lot of a lot of these debates and conversations get framed in kind of you know this is the one way to do it in terms that are kind of overly simple and kind of um, uh, understate the complexity of things like everyone should be a city dweller everyone should be a rural dweller we should be pre industrial we should be, we should embrace industrialization and technology and I think there is uh a space for thinking about these things as pluralities, right? We can't scale Pound Ridge to uh, accommodate many people, right? We would clear the rest of the land. We can't take Michael Pollan's happy story about a small-scale bucolic farm in the mountains of Virginia and feed a lot of people with that. Even if everyone wanted to do that, and very few people want to be farmers nowadays in this country, we would have to clear all the land, we'd have to drive everywhere. No one wants to be
0: farmers in the world, by the way. In,
1: In the world. Yeah. It's also true. One of these kind of very interesting phenomena, right? Because throughout all of history until... 20 30 40 you years You were a ago. farmer. You were a farmer and you and when you had an opportunity to get away from the farm you took the it. The first
0: thing you did was stop yep. being a farmer.
1: And now we're telling this romantic story about everyone should be farmers and how that will be great. And for some people that's wonderful and honestly there should be more young people involved in agriculture but it's not clear that this is where we're going to get a lot of labor to provide agriculture especially at this non-industrial kind of full, format,
0: full right? time back-breaking, backbreaking multiple hour labor i mean we had
1: exposures we had
0: chickens and goats growing up and you know 6am someone's got to go out there and feed those goats right. and someone's got to go out there and get the eggs from those chickens and the six, ones that
1: haven't been eaten already yeah
0: exactly 6am and right. like that's what you got to do and yes. you gotta do that again in the afternoon and in the evening and in the water and you gotta shovel and you gotta you know, it just it it
1: never ends. It's a lot a lot of work. Yeah. And um, and a little, little reward. Little reward. because um, these these are commodities that can be produced at a very modest amount for often for horrible reasons for labor violations, animal welfare violations, public health issues, environmental externalities. It's not great what's coming out of the factory farms, but we can't just kind of revert back to the old pre-industrial bucolic story and pretend that that's a solution. Right. Maybe it's part of the exploration of trying to come up with a model that would allow it. Some people have talked about a golden mean, kind of like not these tiny farms, not these massive farms. A farm that's kind of manageable at a certain scale produces a good amount of yield, but doesn't trash the land.
0: So that's a perfect point to sort of close up today, you know the future. You know, we've got the golden mean, the the farm that is just industrial enough to be efficient but exactly. just just small footprint enough to be, you know, and we've got the yes. I um, you know, okay, I can go eat the steak from that local mountain Virginia, you know, but I can only do that once a month and then it's my special thing because you know actually just like you said for farming you know for the entirety of human history literally 99.9% of people were farmers until 50 years ago and for you know the the what you know 17,000 years of modern human humanity and like a post agricultural humanity uh you did not eat meat
1: right meat meat was very much a uh a luxury because it requires a lot of resources, and we used animals for labor, not just for um, eating their flesh.
0: That caloric input is way more valuable than the other caloric output that right. you would get.
1: Yes. Yes. It's very, it's very modern to be able to eat this much meat and to eat this to do so. And it, it has all kinds of effects that we can talk about another time. Personal health, public health, zoonotic diseases, environmental impacts, you name it. it, it it's pretty substantial. Um, so, yeah, you can think about these in different ways. You can think about it as kind of um, the same person who argues about the golden mean uh, mid sized farm also talks about meat as caviar. Kind of this idea that it, it might be thought of as okay. like a rarefied luxury. Uh, you
0: don't eat ice cream every day, you know.
1: Right. You don't. Or you caviar, don't, I don't. You think. don't.
0: You don't have cotton candy every day. You don't go to the amusement park every day. Right. This isn't. This isn't. You're not. You're not willfully negating a happy aspect of your life by ju- by just modifying your behavior slightly and making this
1: something special and so maybe something to be cherished. Right. I think that's right. And to go back there's some clean takeaways here, but also to go back to this this prior point we had about positive storytelling, there's a whole world of amazing food out there, and there's a whole world of unexplored cooking, right? And we eat a really small uh, percentage of the edible plants in the world, for instance, right? And most people have relatively homogenous standardized diets, right? So this is not deprivation. This is actually kind of a way to explore the world. So I haven't eaten meat since I was 13, Right. I like to cook. I live in Queens. I I live a, a culinarily very rich life. I am not in any way, shape, or form deprived, plus you know, I feel better about my life decisions and values and, and things along those lines. So so to think about that side of it, the kind of the exploration, the curiosity, the world expanding side of it, and then of course all of the environmental and ethical and health benefits that come with a more plant based diet.
0: I mean I guess you say, you know, you haven't eaten meat since thirteen and you're like Well, actually, there is an impact. Because now you have, what, 27 years of not causing that impact. So so maybe your individual choices do have a magnitude. Because just like you said earlier, like, yes, one cow burping doesn't do anything. But 27 years of abstaining from meat, or not abstaining, you're just living a different lifestyle. That's got to have a literal, tangible carbon footprint impact.
1: It has the... uh, I'm not not that old. I'm a couple of years younger than you. But yeah. Whatever. (laughs) Um,
0: You're you're 40 as far as I'm concerned. (laughs) We're all, everyone right now is 40 because I'm turning 40. (laughs) So literally everyone I know is 40. Are you 40? No, I'm 36. You're 40. You're 40. You know, how old are you? I'm like 32. You're 40. You're 40. You're just 40. Every single person on earth is 40
1: round to the Austin mean. Exactly, yeah. exactly. I'm
0: 55. Oh, that's a nice 40. 40 is
1: <laughs> <Yes. laughs> the new 30 anyhow. Um, yeah, so the environmental impact does does matter over, over 25 years. And I think one of the interesting areas, so we were talking about diffused environmental impact, not adding up my climate contributions. When it comes to eating animals, though, there are individual animals, right, that are not being eaten. And it, it gets, it goes through the the proverbial sausage grinder of economics and subsidies and the farm bill, and so it's not like a one-to-one exchange of I didn't eat a chicken and therefore one less chicken got eaten, but it does in the aggregate change demand and right, and it does have that impact that way. Um, if I could kind of uh, mention one generalization that's a bit of a takeaway about the environmental impact of food, perfect. When it comes down to the environmental impact of food, the cleanest way to think about what has environmental impact is basically whether or not it's an animal and whether or not it's a big animal, right? So you start with the cow eating all the feed, burping all the methane, producing all the waste, and then you can kind of go, go down the scale. There's no plant that has environmental impacts that come even close to animal agriculture and so it's there's complexities there's some nuances right there's all kinds of ways like maybe eating a cricket is less environmental impact I was going to, to bring that up yeah like that sure right and it's not to say this is a kind of a perfect distillation thing so if you're only caring about the climate impact of food then that's the takeaway mm-hmm. right large animals especially rumen animals are by far the most impactful there's other things we make decisions based on animal ethics personal health, culinary reasons, social pressures, you name it. But when it comes to the environmental side of the story, that's the one takeaway.
0: Awesome. This was such a pleasure. Professor Christopher Schlottman of NYU, Food, Animals, and the Environment and Ethical Approach comes out...
1: August 20th.
0: August 20th. So it as of this airing, will be on Amazon and other bookshelves. So check it out. Uh, thank you very much, Chris.